We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two. All engines running. Ten questions with Adam Joir. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. Hello and welcome to Ten Questions. The reason this podcast isn't as regular as it should be is paid work often gets in the way. But more to the point, I kind of have to know someone or work with them or get on moderately well with them at a social engagement before I ask them to be on the show. The days of me cold calling people like I did when I worked in newspapers are over. I just don't have the stomach for the rejection or worse, the indifference. So I met today's guest, the comedian, author, and, r- and ridiculously successful podcaster, Andy Zaltzman, recording a cricket video to be released in time for the ashes. And because we both have red hair and like sport, I immediately felt comfortable enough to ask him to do the show. For those who don't know, Andy is an English institution. He studied classics at Oxford, went on to do stand-up in 1999, started working with John Oliver on a variety of live shows as well as radio shows in the early 2000s before starting the Bugle podcast with him in 2007. We're going to go into details about those things during the course of the conversation. And he's also written a book. We talk about that as well. And more impressively, as far as I'm concerned, he's also the stats guy on BBC Cricket Broadcasts. And he also writes a blog for Crick Info. I started off, as usual, by asking Andy when he was most happy. Most, most happy. It, whatever in my life. In your life. <laughs> in my life. I think, um, well, I mean, it's a close call between uh, the birth of my uh, two children and England winning the 2005 Ashes, I think. I mean, it's, it's yeah. very hard <laughs> to put that in any kind of official hierarchy in in terms of actual moments i mean a lot of my happiest moments outside uh, personal life have been watching sport um or thinking about sport um <laughs> so yeah they're, they're that's right up there i'd say so oh five ashes for you when did you realize that you're in with a chance because you lost the first test yes i think it was when they took the last wicket at Edgebaston in the second test, um, the Geraint Jones catch, Australia needed uh, three to win, I think. And uh, I'd just assume by that stage we were going to tank it in the great English cricketing tradition. And I was hot. When that wicket fell, I was so excited I could barely breathe and uh, I was <laughs> slightly hyperventilating. <laughs> Very much like the birth of a, of a child, you know, that ner- that nervous tension. Of and, course. Uh, final relief when it all goes okay a reminder to cricket fans glenn mcgrath was ruled out of that test when he tore ligaments in his ankle after stepping on a cricket ball it was a freak accident something to do with touch football and despite a heroic 10 wickets from shane warne australia would lose by two runs and england would go on to win the series 2-1 and get mbes for their trouble it remains the greatest test series i've ever seen and the result took a lot of cricket fans by surprise it was quite a sound strategy by England. It was basically a pretty much a well, kind of 16-year hustle in which we'd made Australia think we were completely useless and then finally <laughs> turned it on for, for, for one summer. That is very funny, yeah. <laughs> um, question two, who would you like to apologise to and why? 
apologize to um uh, well i mean on a personal level i mean on a, on a national level i guess you know if, if britain starts apologizing we may never find a way of stopping uh, so it's probably best that we keep that under our hats um uh oh uh well there was <laughs> one incident that slightly haunted me since childhood uh from a school science lesson in which i, I broke a little thermometer we had these little thermometers on our desks and uh I broke mine and uh, switched it for the guy boy sitting next to me who didn't notice, and then he got blamed for breaking his thermometer. And uh, I must have been about nine years old. I mean, does that make me an evil person? But um, no, no. But it's probably a bit too late, really, to make any difference now. But you know, I would like to officially apologise. Did he go? Did he go on to do great things? I've no idea what he went on to do. Probably a life of crime, I imagine. <laughs> and that—that's the thing about—that's the thing about being uh, kind of in the public eye. He'd, he'd look at you now and go, "That's the guy that that I stole my thermometer." <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if he ever realised that I'd done that because I think ah. you know he just looked down and his thermometer was broken. I don't think he'd realised it. <laughs> you know, it was the perfect crime in many ways. But you know, just still nag away at me every now and again. Question three is: What is your greatest regret? I, mean, I don't know. I can have too many. My whole life's worked out reason, you know, pretty well. I have a yeah. uh, good family, uh, and a functioning career, doing what I love doing. Uh, in terms of great regrets, I mean, in terms of things that still haunt me, um, uh, England losing the Football World Cup quarterfinal to Argentina in 1986. That's. Uh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't directly anything to do with me, but that still uh, yeah. still <laughs> still stings a bit. Um, I wish I, I wish I'd played. A, I wish I wish I'd been a bit braver, generally in life, both physically and in terms of decision making. Um, I was always quite a coward as a as a child. Um, uh, I started. I played the trumpet for six years as a child, and I wish I'd played the guitar instead because that's a far more sociable instrument. And, yeah, uh, yeah. If I'd spent six years as a kid playing the guitar, I'd be better at it than I am now. Um, and yeah, because I mean, playing the guitar not very well is that yeah, can be quite nice. Uh, playing mm. the trumpet not very well is of no use to anyone, and is <laughs> you know, one of the least sociable activities. No, no one ever sat around a nice campfire on a warm summer's evening playing the trumpet badly. <laughs> People do not do that. So, uh, but that's a pretty minor regret, I guess. Um, yeah, no, I, I can imagine that with. With trumpets, and also you would have picked up a lot more chicks probably if you played the guitar. So, <laughs> I think there were other things that were slightly restricted by opportunity for picking up chicks. <laughs> Not sure it was the trumpet playing. I think it transcends <laughs> anything. A good guitarist transcends anything. Um, it's probably better than comedy. Who not? You know. Uh, yes. Well, <laughs> I've been with my I've been with my current well my current wife. I mean showbiz. <laughs> my first wife. Uh, since before I started doing stand-up, so over twenty years now. So oh, that's um, good. That's good. Stand-ups, uh, yeah, it wasn't uh, that wasn't the reason I went into it. Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> um, what were you? St- question four is what will you still need to do to feel you lived a satisfactory life? Uh, I don't know really. I'd, I'd I'd like I guess to do a bit more comedy on on television, but uh, I don't know. I've um, just keep uh, I, I, as long as I get to the end of whenever my comedy career ends uh, and feel that I've pushed myself as far as I can get uh, I guess I'd be reasonably 
satisfied with that, regardless of you know what whether that translates into uh, you know broader success or not. Um, so uh, yeah, I'd like to write a book. I'd like to write a. I wrote one book, uh, but I had a three week deadline. Oh my god! Um, and uh, which is not uh, not the best way to write a book, certainly. Um, so I'd like to sit down and write one properly, and yeah, maybe uh, maybe try and write, you know, write a write a film or something. But um, yeah, I, yeah, I'm not sure I've got any. It's probably always been a bit of a flaw of mine. I'm not really set clear enough goals in my professional life. I'm just kind of bumbled along from one deadline to the next. But uh, what were the circumstances in that that you had to write a book in three weeks? So. Uh, it was just after the uh, uh, global crash of 2008 and um, the financial crash. And uh, an old university friend had a little publishing house that he'd set up. And he rang me up and said, do you want to write a book about the credit crunch? And I said, well, I don't know anything about it. And he said, I don't know. I don't, he said, that doesn't matter. I just want you know a funny book about the credit crunch. And I said, all right, OK, I'll give it a go. And he said, right, if you want to get the Christmas market, I need it in three weeks. So, um, oh, my God. So uh, that was October 2008. So in, uh, it was it was four weeks from the first phone call to it being on the shelves in the shops, which was uh, pretty that's, quick. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And so, how many words? Uh, about thirty thousand words. So not not a massive. No, book, but, but still, nonetheless, a book. That's insane. And what were you just? What was your angle? Well, it was a, a sort of Q and A book about e- economics, but kind of bullshit. The book was called Does Anything Eat Bankers and 53 Other Indispensable Questions for the Credit Crunched. In a time when it was difficult for anyone to retain a sense of humour and he advised people to keep things in perspective, the Black Death was worse. The book was universally celebrated at the time and is now available on Kindle. Lots of uh, contrived analogies um, as... Uh, which is my, my, my MO, I guess. Um, and, uh, yeah, kind of bullshit bibliographies and, and stuff. So it was, you know, I didn't have to write a coherent whole. It was a, by its, the structure was a series of questions and answers. 30,000 words though, you would have had a lot of, a lot of adrenaline running through your, your veins, you know, to do that in three weeks. Yes. And I also, I was doing the Bugle podcast at the time. So that was another weekly deadline and, doing some stand-up and we had a baby <laughs> and uh, it was uh and i think i had a writing job on another tv show so that's insane. it was a it was a ridiculous month i was getting about three hours sleep a night and writing <laughs> in a haze of fatigue which is quite a good way to write i think in some ways i noticed andy mentioned the bugle just then for those who don't know the bugle is a podcast hosted by andy and john oliver it was originally financed by the london times newspaper It started in 2007 and by 2015 was getting half a million downloads a week. The famed podcast ran until June last year when John Oliver left the show due to his commitments in the US. It was off air for about five months before it re-emerged last September with a cast of rotating co-hosts who will hopefully keep John's seat warm. But since we're talking about the Zoltzman-Oliver partnership, let's find out how it all started. We met just doing um, stand-up gigs in, in Britain then uh, John did some sketches in my first solo Edinburgh show then I did the same in his the following year so mine was in 2001 then we started doing radio stuff also with Chris Addison who's yep. uh, um, 
now we've worked on on Veep and various other things. Um, uh, so we did radio stuff together, and then John and I did two live shows together in Edinburgh in '04 and '05, and we're about to do the third one when he got the uh, the Daily Show gig. And for some reason, he chose to take that rather than performing <laughs> to 40 people at night in a dingy room in Edinburgh. I still don't. It's current bizarre, bizarre choice. So, I and and the fact that you got a couple of friends who have gone over to the states is that like has that interested you at all to to make the journey i guess well i'd like to do more stuff in the states i did a tour there last september and october i'm hoping to be back at the end of uh, uh this year probably around about the same time um and yeah i guess there's you know, various opp- opportunities there um at the same time you know i have a young family so uh, the full immigration like john did i'm not sure is necessarily on the cards but who knows i guess it just depends what well they don't like what, if anything props up <laughs> yeah, I mean, cricket is, a, I mean, that is a big issue for me. Mm. Could I live in a country without cricket? That's, I don't I mean, how do you find it living, uh, living uh, in LA? Well, I've got no one to talk to about it. Right. <laughs> so I, I've got Willow TV and, and, the, and the picture quality is great. I, you know, if it's an Australian test, I get to watch the whole day's play. Um, if it's a, but now they've brought in the pink ball and, and night, and night tests, I don't get to watch the last session, right? Um, so that's a bit upsetting. And and an English, <laughs> and a, and an Ashes in England is pretty much right when when you're meant to be sleeping. So it's it's a kind it's a little bit inconvenient. Yeah, so I think I'd find it very difficult not to be. Yeah, it is difficult. Sleeping. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, I mean, the big thing for Australians is you you pretty much can get nearly a full day in if you if you stretch it. Uh, for an Ashes series in England, um, I had to go to bed at lunch when I was a kid, um, watching yep. the eighty-one Test series, and that right. was that was devastating. You know, yeah. <laughs> Dad coming in saying, "Off to bed." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember sitting up sitting up late at night, listening to radio commentary from. Uh, it's been a nineteen ninety ninety-one Ashes. So I'd have been know, sixteen or so. Um, uh, well up past my uh, my scheduled <laughs> bedtime before school the next day, listening to commentary through to about you know five a.m. <laughs> so there's something great about listening listening to cricket commentary at night in bed on your own on headphones. Yeah. Is, uh, it's one of life's greatest joys. <laughs> it is, and the key to a successful marriage, I believe. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> Um, question five is who is the person who most influenced you and how? Um, well, I mean, I guess most people probably say I, my father probably influenced me a lot, largely just through his career choice. He's a sculptor. And his father, Zach Zoltzman, was a high-earning management consultant before giving it all away to become a sculptor. If you go online, one of Zach's most prominent works is a statue of a guy being tackled in a game of rugby union. It's powerful, it's evocative, and it's called They Tackled the Job. Zach and Andy share a love of puns. But the fact that Zach was a sculptor gave Andy a free pass when contemplating a career in comedy. So, uh, I guess... um yeah, it meant that he was not in a position to turn to me when I started doing stand-up and tell me to get a proper job. So, yeah, um, yeah, uh, yeah, on a on a personal level, uh, him pro- professionally, um, uh, I, yeah, 
I'm not sure. I think certainly working with with uh, with John on in our early years on the stand up circuit, um, I think we sort of pushed each other to do more political stuff, mm. uh, which probably helps you know both of us mutually. So. Yeah. Um, John was involved in Andy's first full-length Edinburgh Fringe show in 2001, which earned him a Best Newcomer nomination. The show was called Andy Zaltzman versus the Dog of Doom. <laughs> and I had this uh, box on stage with a Beware of the Dog sign on and a little padlock and a microphone in front of it. That was the Dog of Doom. John was voicing the dog from off stage, <laughs> And it was a series of contests. We had, had a series of votes during the show. And which I'd put a proposal and then the Dog of Doom would put something apocalyptic as his proposal and get the audience <laughs> to vote on it. And it had various other sketches in it as well. So there were bits of political stuff in that, but uh, I can't really remember the content, but it was a fun show to do and was watched by an average of about 14 people a night in Edinburgh. So uh, Andy's current show, Plan Z, is a glorious melting pot of geopolitics and geo-cricket. Is Pierce de Resistance, is Andy getting hold of a 3D printout of Trump's brain, which is basically a cauliflower, and then plugging electrodes into it and asking it a series of questions about cricket. Andy's edited together various parts of Trump's interviews and speeches, so it appears the US president knows something about the game Andy loves. I can't, well, the, uh, yes, I can't quite, I can't remember the thought processes that went into the Trump Thing. I think I just looked at a cauliflower and thought that looked like a brain at home and then thought, I wonder if I could do something with that. And then it eventually became me trying to turn Donald Trump's brain into a cricket fan. So um, <laughs> I'm not sure I'd necessarily work in the comedy clubs uh, <laughs> on a, to stag parties on a Friday night, but uh, the sort of art, you know, artsy festival crowds seem, to, oh, seem to go. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's fantastic. And so you do have a completely different act for, for clubs. Well, I don't really do clubs much, partly because... Clubs don't really want me, and I was quite bad at club kicks and uh, took some heavy enemy fire early, earlier in my career, and I, I tend to mostly do my own my own show in theatres and art centres now. Look, I would never discourage anyone from seeing any show, but you definitely get more out of Andy's work if you've read about current events or have seen a test match. Question seven, when was the last time you cried and why? The last time I cried? Um, uh... Oh, I, just, I, I got very close to crying when Roger Federer won the Australian Open at the start of this year, <laughs> which um, I'm not sure you should be doing at the age of 42, but I get quite emotional watching Federer. So um, mm. that was, uh, I cried a lot at the, uh, the births of my children and my own wedding. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember. Um, I went to, um, we went to a, a World War II cemetery in, in northern France about Three years ago on a family holiday, I'd never been to a war cemetery before, and I found it completely overwhelming. Um, and um, yeah, I sort of started crying, and my, my son came up to me, he was about five at the time, and said, I've never seen you cry, Daddy. And um, wow. it was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, so I think maybe that was the last, that was the last full on yeah. tears I had. Yeah, I've just, yeah, having never been, and it was, it was a, it was a I think a Canadian war cemetery in Normandy, and it was, um, yeah, just completely overwhelming in a way I'd not fully expected. Um, on Federer, what is it about Federer that kind of stirs up emotions? I think it's just the uh, the unfeasible beauty of his tennis, and it's uh, and also the fact that in recent years he's been 
generally losing to mm. the top guys. And so there was, I guess, an element of nostalgia about it. Uh, I mean, maybe even a sense that he, his tennis almost seems like the end of uh, an era of that type of play. I don't know if that's, that's yeah. going to prove to be the case or not. Um, but I've just loved watching him for so long, as many tennis and, and sports fans have. And to see him, you know, I think most people have assumed he'd never win another major. So when he, he, he dug that one out against against Nadal, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, yeah I, I get a little too emotionally invested in it, probably. A- any English cricketers that would, that brings that um, an emotion, that kind of emotion in you? Uh, well, Gower used to a bit when I was a kid, just, uh, but again, he was fr- brilliant, but fragile. Um, mm. Um, Such similar players. Yeah. I mean, really, Federer and Gower, actually, you know, they are the kind of purest form of both games. Yeah. So Federer, I guess, had that just total technical mastery. Mm. Um, yeah. Allied to incredible style. Whereas Gower, you always thought he was, oh, he was brilliant, but he had quite a lot of failures as well. And oh. and also he was messed around by the England selectors towards the end of his... Uh, Really? Of his um, career, sort of rather harshly, prematurely dropped because uh, he didn't quite fit with the new... Uh, I saw his last ever innings for England, bowled by Wacker Eunice playing no shot for one at the Oval. And, uh, well, that was that. It's not embarrassing getting bowled by Wacker <laughs> Eunice. Um, what is your current state of mind, is question seven. My current state of mind? Uh, oh, quite positive, I think. Um I'm not particularly hopeful about the planet uh, <laughs> from a personal point of view. Uh, yeah, my, um, I've had a good time in Australia. Things seem to have gone reasonably well. I've got you know, plenty of work coming up. My family's healthy and happy. So, uh, um, yeah, but that said, uh, the global situation does uh, occasionally make me wonder whether... <laughs> whether with, the entire planet's going to be on fire within a couple of years, but who knows? <laughs> that was me laughing ruefully. But back to Andy's show, Plan Z, which I saw at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. One of the things I admired about it was how he remembered all his lines. Because what he's written for himself is quite dense and structured, kind of like a novel by Wodehouse or War. And it would seem that if he forgot one word then the whole house of cards would fall down. So with that in mind, I was keen to know if the intensity of performing a show like this left him exhausted. And the answer was, not really. Well, it is one hour's work a day, so one can't really complain about it. Um, but then there's, you know, the sort of tension before mm. uh, in the in the build-up most days. But, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, not, um, it's not exhausting in the grand scheme of things. It's a lot of lines, darling. You've got, you've got a lot of lines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, question eight is, what do you consider your greatest achievement? Uh, my greatest achievement um, is, well, uh, uh, comedically, I think, well, the Bugle podcast, which is mm. almost 10 years now. Uh, and I think we've kept, uh, so I did it with John Oliver for eight years or so and relaunched it last September with last October with uh, rotating guest co-hosts and uh, I think money we managed to keep up pretty good standards for you know over 300 about 350 episodes now I guess um, so yeah that, there was a radio series I did with John and Chris Addison called The Department 
which we did three series of in the sort of mid part of the, the last decade. And uh, uh, I think that was really, really good. And I always wanted to make it as a TV show and maybe someday that will, will come back to life. And uh, we put a lot of work into it. And I think uh, I think it was really good, but it's not really available anywhere. There's some a few dodgy streams of it on the internet. But um, <laughs> it was... a. Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, that that was something I was really proud of. And occasionally, it comes up on my, you know, my MP3 player shuffle, and still oh, makes wow. me laugh, which is oh, that's good. Yeah, you, you said you were a coward as a child, but with your comedy and obviously with the bugle, you, you've you, you've been anything but a coward. You, you guys have been very brave, and you've pulled no punches, particularly, I guess, when you were with the Times and the whole kind of hacking thing happened. Um, do, do you see? Do you see yourselves as brave, or do you, do you just kind of that's what you have to do? I, I don't see it as 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 brave, particularly. Um, I mean, I guess we've always kept independence uh, in terms of what uh, what we did on the on the podcast, and uh, that's one of the great joys of stand up is you have that total freedom. Mm. Um, uh, I don't. Yeah, it's not. But no, there's no censorship, is what I'm saying. You never you yeah. never censored yourselves. No, it's uh, but I'm not sure I'd consider it bravery particularly. I mean, when, with the the phone hacking stuff, we you know it was such a big story that we just covered it. And also when we were at the, the the so the first four years of the bugle was hosted by the Times, and they never interfered with anything. They just let us get on with it to the extent where I think they probably forgot that they were still paying for it. Um, <laughs> and uh, so we just you know did, did what we wanted to do, and eventually they they sacked us. Um, whether that was because of things we'd said or just uh, basic finances of wasting money on a podcast. Uh, I think it was okay. more like the latter, to be honest. The reason I asked the question is that the Times is owned by Rupert Murdoch, who owned News of the World, the main offender in the whole hacking situation. And there was speculation back in 2011 that News Corp had grown tired of Andy and John's withering comedic barbs directed at Murdoch and his son James and had sacked them. As a result, but Andy and his producer Chris Skinner before him are at pains to say that wasn't the case. I don't. I don't think so. And um, I've done bits and bobs with the Times since, so it's not like I was blacklisted. And uh, oh, that's good. And it was a few months after we'd done that stuff that they got got rid. So I think it was just basically they. They. I mean, it was great. They supported us and, and helped us get established for four years. So yeah, I've got no, no yeah. complaint. No, that's good. That's good. <laughs> Um, the second last question, probably my favourite question: Who would you want on your side in a battle, and why? Oh, wow! Um, uh, <laughs> well, it depends what type of battle. What are we talking about here? Well, Just it, like an old-style hand-to-hand combat battle. It could be that, um, or it could be a show business battle. It could be a comedy battle. You know, who would you? Um, I guess, uh, yeah. Who, who would you want? Who's someone that you can trust? In those kind of circumstances, right? Well, you, can, you can have two different. You can have a, you can have a hand to hand person, <laughs> and you can have a comedy person. Right. Oh God, that's. God, uh, oh, no idea really. Um, God, in a uh, yeah, I don't, I'm trying to think in a in a battle. I mean, I'd probably choose the uh, mythical ancient Greek warrior Achilles for a hand to hand combat because he seems to be pretty yeah. good at it, according to uh, Homer. But whether that's fake news or not, I guess we'll never know. Um, <laughs> Um, show, showbiz battle. Uh, I don't know. I'd like to have, I guess, uh, you've got to have someone with a big cigar. Isn't that the absolute key to winning a showbiz battle? That's, that's true. So Maybe true. The, 
the guy from the A team. Was it Hannibal Smith? Yeah. Dig him out of uh, Diamond. <laughs> question 10 and the last question. What would you like your last words to be? <laughs> um, my last words. Um, uh, my last words. Uh, all right, thank you and good night. Let's go out with a big showbiz, showbiz <laughs> ending. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two. All engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff.